0: Thanks very much Lindy. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be back in, in Brisbane and uh, and I have the title of adjunct professor with uh, great honour. Um, as Lindy said, when I was asked to talk on this topic I had assumed that, that uh, law reform would be achieved in Queensland around abortion. Um, but it, it remains uh, in the state that it is as a, as a crime uh, and it, it's in honoured Uh, companies such as Saudi Arabia and and Ireland where abortion is also a crime. So my arguments here will more pertain to the Victorian situation where abortion has been decriminalised but uh, there are various statutory provisions that grant doctors a right of conscientious objection. And as I'll finish, as Lindy sort of intimated at the beginning, this isn't just a question of abortion or assisted dying, it's going to be a question of ordinary provision of medicine in a vast number of cases as patients start to have a range of values that may differ from those of their doctor. So I put in an ARC grant with colleagues at at CSU and Macquarie, not because I'm particularly interested in conscientious objection around abortion, it's because I'm very interested around the place of values in medicine, and in particular the place of doctor's values in the delivery of healthcare. So I'll I'll return to that um, as we progress. So in in Victoria, uh, Victoria decriminalised abortion in around 2008. But they introduced this very controversial uh, clause that allows doctors to conscientiously object. Uh, But it requires that doctors inform the woman and that they refer the woman, and in emergency situations participate in, in uh, a, an abortion. And, and opponents of abortion have criticised this, I think, quite rightly, as being an inappropriate response to conflict of values. And I'll, I'll return to that. And I also think this is inappropriate. So we have this kind of convergence, even, and you know I'll come clean, I've written a lot supporting the decriminalisation of abortion. But I agree that this kind of conscientious uh, provision is inappropriate. Um, now, a woman's said in the Victorian context, a woman's right to make decisions about her body must be balanced against the religious or conscientious beliefs of a health practitioner, um, and that health practitioners should not be discriminated against on the basis of their uh, beliefs. So. What's wrong with having such a provision? I'm going to come to some philosophical problems with this place of values in medicine in general. Uh, But practically, the upshot is that women face many obstacles to obtaining safe and uh, legal abortions. So, a recent study from the Murdoch Children's (laughs) Research Institute um, showed that women have to wait significant periods of time, they didn't receive adequate assistance, and they often face reviews by termination panels, even when the law says that termination should be offered for any reason up to 24 weeks. Uh, many felt inadequately supported by their doctors if they decided to have a termination, often perceiving being negatively judged. You, you turn up to a doctor asking for assistance and you're told that the doctor Disapproves of that procedure and won't perform it themselves. And this shame and the obstacles that it presents represent another barrier. Um, indeed, some GPs have told patients that they can't provide this service. Uh, and if you're in rural areas, even of Victoria, you'll often face delays. And there are several cases of late terminations that have resulted because of delays uh, in, in, in referral. So, uh, about One third of pregnant women in Victoria are cared for in Catholic hospitals that don't perform abortions uh, and there's no way of coordinating equitable access. Um, In fact, a study in 2007 in the United States uh, of doctors anonymously showed that 14% of doctors would not inform patients of all legal available options. That means in the US situation 40 million Americans won't be told of things they're legally entitled to and 29% wouldn't refer to a doctor who would provide this service. They investigated uh, things like assisted dying, abortion and emergency contraception. So that's hundred million Americans, so roughly a third of doctors who personally object won't refer on. So that's a very significant issue in practice uh, around access to what has become in Victoria a legal medical service. But I now want to talk more about the philosophical issue of what is the role of a doctor's conscience or values in the delivery of medicine. Um, the current system in practice prioritises doctors' own rights to object over patients' right to access. Um, eligible patients, I've argued in an article that's just coming out, could be guaranteed access to medical services either by removing a right of conscientious objection, I'll talk about that by selecting candidates into relevant medical specialities on the basis that they don't have objections, or demonopolising the provision of the relevant medical service to outside of the profession. Now you might say, my God, how could we remove a doctor's right to religiously uh, to, to conscientiously object? Well in fact this is precisely what occurs in Sweden and Finland. There is no legal right of conscientious objection. So, Doctors can conscientiously object, and their employer will deal with it on a case-by-case basis. Um, So there isn't a legal right, though doctors can try to opt out of providing services and negotiate with their employer under labor law about the level of provision that's provided. But there is no right for them to say, no, I'm not going to provide that service. It's up to their. And this has, in fact, been challenged by midwives recently in Sweden in the European Court of Human Rights, and that challenge failed. and both countries maintain excellent healthcare services that provide very high levels of care for pregnant women. And they don't find trouble attracting high-quality doctors because of the absence of a, a right to conscientiously object. So if you want an ecological experiment of what I think a system should be like, look to Sweden and Finland, not to Saudi Arabia and, and, and Ireland, uh, to see where we should be focusing our attention. Okay, but here are some arguments that people give for conscientious objection. This is drawn from, I wrote an article which was very provocative in 2006 against conscientious objection. A number of people responded. Here is the most recent raft of arguments against that um, argument. Christopher Cowley writes, conscientious objection is is equivalent to occupational health needs. If a doctor has a problem with their back, we ought to try to accommodate that. Uh, and, and support that doctor in providing medical services despite their inability to provide certain services. Um, he also argues that doctors have entered the health system before it came to encompass these practices, so they're not obliged to provide them now, because they didn't enter on the expectation that they might be provided, providing euthanasia or, uh, or, um, or abortion. They, he also argues that doctors will leave the profession or fail to enter because of conscientious considerations, and um, they'll be forced to act against their conscience, and so do so half heartedly and uh, provide a poor service. Now, people often focus this debate on abortion, but of course, exactly the same objections apply to many forms of contraception, uh, emergency contraception. Uh, the intrauterine device, and even the oral contraceptive pill all have actions on the early embryo. Although the main action of the oral contraceptive pill is to prevent ovulation, it also, in a minority of cases, causes the miscarriage of an early early, uh, embryo. And in fact many people who have conscientious objections to abortion also have conscientious objections to contraception. There are... You know, cases in the literature including from Australia where people attend their gynecologist and their gynecologist refuses to prescribe contraception. Um, Now if you focus on contraception, contraception is something that is an enormous achievement for, for, for human beings. The ability to control our fertility has been one of the major liberating forces for women but also one of the major achievements for family planning. Now, of course, some people object to it and nobody should be forced to use contraception. But we don't provide contraception just because some people want it. We provide it because it's a good thing that we don't have 10 children or 12 children and people don't die during childbirth. So contraception is is something that ought to be provided by medicine. It's a good thing. It's a social good, at least when there isn't a problem of underpopulation. And insofar as people want it, doctors ought to provide it. Um, And insofar as doctors have a monopoly over the prescription of certain forms of contraception, they ought to provide it to people who want it. Now, if you look at this argument about um, an analogy to occupational needs, um, for religious or other objecting general practitioners, obstetricians, and pharmacists who who provide, oral contraceptives, in my view, is simply unprofessional because this is an important part of medical service. It's not an optional extra. There should be no requirement to accommodate the refusal to provide contraception and there's no analogy to accommodating a doctor with a back problem because contraception just is, we think in Australia, a standard part of medical care that people have access to. So doctors who entered the system before these practices came into being, medicine is a career that lasts for 40 years and of course things are going to change. For example, contraception would be something that for much older doctors was not around in any effective form when they first started practising, but nonetheless it's something that ought to be provided because as a society, and for good reason, for good ethical reasons, we see contraceptive as an, contraception as an important social good. So will doctors leave the profession or fail to enter because they have conscientious object? Not so in Sweden or Finland. It may be the case in Ireland or Saudi Arabia where you have a highly religious population with large numbers of people who hold that particular value, but in a country like Australia where there are plenty of people with a diversity of views that are ready to take part in in medical education and medical practice, it's simply more analogous to Sweden or Finland where you'll fill that need without having to accommodate those kinds of values. Doctors will perform their their duties half-heartedly well, if people perform their medical duties half heartedly, they're guilty of a breach of duty of care and can be sued for negligence. So, the fact that they might do that um, has adequate redress in standard medical ethics and law. So, we could also select candidates into the various specialties that are designated to be providing those services uh, on the basis that they don't have uh, those relevant objections as an alternative to removing uh, the right to conscientiously object, um, and we could also demonopolise services. There's no particular reason why euthanasia or assisted dying services have to be provided by doctors. Um, however, this will be expensive and cumbersome and have a number of negative uh, effects associated with it. Now much of the basis for conscientious objection is religious. and. Many of the traits that religion focuses on, such as empathy, compassion, are important in medicine. And one of the arguments that's often given is that you'll be excluding many of the most caring and compassionate doctors if you don't allow conscientious objection. But it's simply not true that these traits are unique to religions. Um, As the case again of, of Sweden and Finland show, there are plenty of compassionate, people who are prepared to offer these kinds of services. and In fact, some religious doctrines lead to very poor medicine in Ireland. The practice of symphysotomy was practiced until the 1990s, which split women's pelvises uh, where there was evidence of obstructed labour in order to facilitate delivery and prevent the need for caesarean section in the hope of maximising the number of children women could have. This led to enormous chronic pain, disability and incontinence. This was purely on the basis of religious values that uh, Irish doctors had. Medical practices should be evaluating according to their impact on the patient in terms of the patient's autonomy or interests and not according to how they conform to religious principles or personal values. So, What, are the role, what is the role of values in medicine? Doctors must, at the end, put patients' interests ahead of their own values. They must ensure that people have access to legal, beneficial, desired services that that if they don't provide themselves, they ensure are provided by others. Now, the place to debate controversial ethical issues, such as contraception, abortion, euthanasia, and a whole raft of others, is not at the bedside with the patient. It's at a societal level, as you're doing now in Queensland, around whether to decriminalise... Uh, abortion, and there's nothing to stop you keeping it a crime and allowing any kind of conscientious objection. Um, that's the, the beauty of democracy. Um, but in my view, the way we should go is to make this a standard medical service as other places have. Um, in fact, it's not just Christians who have values that they want to be considered in the delivery of healthcare to patients, it's also non-Christians. A survey of of, uh, Muslim medical students in the UK showed that a significant minority of them believe that doctors should not have to examine patients of the opposite sex. Now you'll say that's sexist, Um, whereas the objection to providing abortion is not sexist. But it's also discriminating against pregnant women, in my view on the basis uh, of a set of values. And we're less willing to accommodate views when they don't conform to the views that we tend to support. Now you might think that this is not a problem but at the moment 25% of the Australian population, well in 2011 25% of the population was Catholic and 2% were Muslim, but that bottom figure is going to, it's the fastest growing religion in the world. I'll be very interested to know what the 2016 census shows, but at some point there will be more Muslim people in Australia than there will be Christian people and they will have values that are different. And they will seek to have patient care affected by their own values. So this is an issue that is just going to get bigger and bigger. But it's also going to get bigger and bigger in a secular way. Now I want to turn the microscope on myself, I'm not a religious person, I used to be, but I am no longer but I have values. I think there are lots of things that are wrong in medicine. Um, I think doctors are doing the wrong thing. I've got conscientious objections to lots of practices in medicine and one of them is organ donation. Okay, so William Isdale and I have written a paper uh, together arguing that we ought to increase the supply of organs. People are dying every day in Australia as we bury or burn organs that are of no use to the dead people. And we could increase the supply by having an opt-out system, by an overriding family refusal, or by prioritising donors in the allocation of, of organs. Um, this is a practice. Australia is one of the worst countries in terms of organ donation, where doctors will, even when a patient has signed an organ donor card, if one family member objects, will send those organs to, the, to cremation or to burial. I think this is deeply wrong. I I think we should move to an opt-out system, and we should reject families' uh, refusals, and we should also—I think—we should do all three of those. That's what I think the right thing should be should be done. Now, does that mean that I should take patients' organs if I was a doctor because I think it's the right thing to do? I'd be saving people's lives, and I wouldn't be harming anyone significantly. (coughs) Maybe the family. No, in Australia people have the right to refuse to donate their organs and that's the way it is. So Will and I have been campaigning to change the law even though we think this lethal practice is is immoral. Another example I gave in the paper is and this will be very, I'm sure there's some people who are from right to life organisations, conducive to your view, I think it's wrong to destroy frozen embryos. I think they should be donated to other couples who can't have children. But in fact the law gives people the right to destroy their embryos even when there is somebody who wants to adopt that child or that embryo and would get great pleasure and there'd be a new life come into existence, I think that's wrong. Do I think we should take embryos off people, you know, because we disagree with their views? No. We should try to campaign to change the law so that frozen embryos aren't discarded. Um, and there are many examples like this. So, another example would be, many people believe in what's called a fair innings argument, that we shouldn't be using expensive health resources to keep people alive after the age of, of 70 or 80. Dan Callahan, Ezekiel Manuel, two of the greatest figures in bioethics, both hold this fair innings argument. Now, if I'm an intensive care specialist, should I be imposing that view on patients that come into my intensive care unit? No, I shouldn't. I shouldn't be disconnecting people because they've turned 80, because I've got a very valid moral view. Um, in this case I think a correct moral view. Nonetheless, unless society accepts and standard medical ethics and law accept that practice, then my job is not at the bedside, it's at the societal level. So values are very important. There's nothing wrong as an IVF specialist with me saying to an infertile couple, I think it's the wrong thing for you to do to destroy your embryos. I think you ought to donate them to another couple, or I think you ought to give them to research. Or there's nothing wrong with me saying to a grieving family, I think you're wrong to bury and burn these organs when you could save seven people's lives. But at the end of the day, if they have the legal power to refuse to do that, I have to respect that and just say, well, now I'll support your decision because my job is not to be a moral authoritarian or dictator, it's to serve patients' interests. So the place of values is in in dialogue with patients or in trying to change policy and law, but not imposing values at the bedside, or denying treatment to people who are legally entitled to access that particular service. Okay, so I'm about to finish. One of the other arguments is that doctors who conscientiously object have the goals of medicine at heart. So here's Christopher Cowley in a recent objection to Udo Shuklenk and me. He says, it's not a contingent aversion to abortion that she, the doctor, happens to hold. It is not a psychological quirk that can and should be overcome. It's not some debating society posture that should be abandoned in the real world. And it's not even theologically motivated. Rather, it has to do directly with the nature of medicine as she understands and identifies with it. An understanding that makes abortion objectively incompatible with the doctor as a healer. For her, pregnancy is not simply a disease or an injury that needs medical treatment. The important thing to stress here is that the understanding of medicine is not at all bizarre or idiosocratic. Well, that sounds fantastic, doesn't it? You know, you read that and you think, gee, that's a knockdown argument. That does sound like a pretty, you know, reasonable view of the goals of medicine, but just substitute abortion with contraception. And it goes on to say the following. Um, For example, aversion to contraception has to do directly with the nature of medicine as she understands and identifies with it, an understanding that makes contraception objectively incompatible with being a doctor's healer. Now, there are some people that believe that. But just believing it doesn't make it so, and it's not the fact that somebody happens to believe the purpose of medicine is to to deny people contraception, therefore it is the purpose of medicine. This is a highly relativistic view about the purpose of medicine, and it's not a view that we should accept. We should decide, as a community, as you're doing in Queensland now, what the goals of medicine are. And when contraception is legalised, and abortion is legalised, and euthanasia is legalised, at one level the debate is over. You can continue to try to reverse the law or change the law, but at the level of patient care, it becomes a part of the goal of medicine. Okay, now one of the other objections I always get, I'm going to finish after this, is that we want people to be conscientious. Isn't it a good thing that people conscientiously object to, to, to torture or evils or um, the death penalty? The doctors refuse to administer lethal objections in the US. Um, now, <laughs> uh, what we want to do is is encourage people to resist those sorts of unethical practices and surely if we stop doctors conscientiously objecting, we'll stop those kinds of very beneficial effects of conscientious objection. So, One famous example was a a nurse at Guantanamo Bay who refused to force feed one of the prisoners who was on a hunger strike. He conscientiously objected to force feeding this this person. and this was, you know, a, a really admirable, conscientious objection, um, and indeed faced court martial. However, this is not what we're talking about when we're talking about the provision of medical services. Force feeding hunger strikers is not providing the person with something that they want, or that's in their interests, and nor is it legal. Torture is not legal. It's not in the interest. The death penalty is not providing something to somebody who wants it and is it, it's in their interests. So these are not to do with the provision of medicine, they're quite different practices that have, it's quite reasonable to object to providing them. So it's ethics and law, ethics around principles that we decide as a society should govern the practice of medicine, medicine that should decide what services are provided let me pass over that. So reasons and values are essential in medicine. Doctors, like other people, have values and hopefully they track what's right. But those values ought not govern the delivery of healthcare at the bedside. They ought to inform policy and legal reform, they ought to be the basis of dialogue, but doctors have no special status in providing medical services to patients and deciding whether on the basis of their own particular values, whether religious or non-religious, they approve or disapprove of what the patient is doing. So these kinds of debates focus on abortion, contraception, euthanasia, but they also apply to sterilisation. They also apply to hospital versus home birth versus elective caesarean section. I've written arguments against home birth but home birth is a legal option that people ought to be able to be informed of and choose if they want, even though I disapprove of it. Um, Human enhancement, circumcision, male or female, where people request that normal anatomy is changed on the basis of religious or cultural beliefs. Um, This is something there can be reasonable disagreement over. Uh, And it ought not be dependent on the particular values of the doctor providing it, destroying spare embryos, the sale of organs, IVF for gay, single, old, obese people. These are all services that are denied to people in practice on the basis of the doctor's own values and disapproval, but that's not the way in which that sort of decision should be made on the basis of which doctor you happen to see. Transplants for smokers and alcoholics, the treatment of people who harm themselves, conversion therapy for homosexuals, sex change operations, providing HPV vaccine to adolescent girls, all of you will have different values. You'll think those things are right or wrong. And that's wonderful that we have different values. But that shouldn't dictate whether a patient gets the treatment, whether you happen to be a doctor approves or disapproves of that particular value. So in the end, it's ethics and law that should dictate medical services individual personal values and desires ought not determine what is actually provided at the bedside, though they can inform dialogue and contribute to social policy and law reform. Thank you.
1: Thanks for that. My name is Kamu here. I happen to be a consultant colorectal surgeon from the UK. And I'm finishing off a master's in bioethics from Monash. Um, I actually agree with you wholeheartedly. And actually, what I've been trying to do by doing bioethics is to understand where the objection is. And surprisingly, I find the objection from philosophers. So I agree with you that I think I take a more Kantian view of the profession. Uh, that technically we have a professional conscience such that we are required to be, by profession, by duty, either uh, depending on the situation, conscientious objectors, professional conscientious objectors, or enhancers. And if I was to give you just one example, the one that I cannot fathom is the cases of rape of teenagers that take place in the South American Catholic uh, countries. I don't understand over there that what group of uh, obstetricians and gynecologists can professionally put hand on heart and say, we will let this child go through with the whole pregnancy. So actually I'm on you, but I'm with you, but I actually think we're not pushing doctors far enough to do what it says on the label. Where am I wrong?
0: Well, uh, um, I'm not really sure. <laughs> uh, so, if I understand what your, your, your objection is, we're not pushing doctors who force young girls who have been raped to her adolescence to go through pregnancy on the basis of their beliefs. Um, look, just to play the devil's advocate for a moment, I think that, you know, I, I have. If you think that the embryo and the fetus is a person like you or I, um, I I can see that you would object to abortion in any circumstance, even in the case of rape, because you're actually so. So I think that, in in that sense, there's really nothing to be said to, to people that have that view. I mean, it's if you're. It's, it's just a different world view. And it's not that you can make it better by finding a consensus position. It's no, that you're right. The problem is in countries like Australia where there's a mixture of views. So Some people genuinely believe that and some people don't. And you have to take, a, a, in, in that country, I think that you just have to take a position and you have to, you have to use the law to, to enforce that because there isn't a middle ground. I mean, I think that people want to say that there's some, there's some kind of, of, of stable uh, toleration of different views, and some views are just mutually incompatible. And you know, I, I, all I can say is I think that's profoundly wrong. I think female infibulation in, in Africa, where you excise the clitoris and over the vagina, and women actually want it, and, and young girls want it because they want it to be a part of that community, so it's desired by that community. I think that's wrong. And at the base of it, I did skip over this slide, I think is whether you're a moral relativist or not. So moral relativism is the view that people's values are just determined by the society in which they live or their own desires. Um, so what's right in one place is not necessarily what's right in another. and The whole of universal human rights and after World War II the move towards creating a kind of universal ethic has been a move away from pure relativism. But most people are relativists. But I think it's deeply wrong. If if that were true then what the Nazis did was right in their terms was just wrong in our terms. What people do in Africa and female infibulation is right there but wrong here. And I think you should say it's wrong because it denies women an essential part of human flourishing and an adequate sexual life. And you should say, having an adequate sexual life is an objective good. So you have to come down on one side or the other on these moral issues, and I think you know Australia needs to come down on one side or the other, uh, and, and, and su- support that. Uh, I think um, you were fairly clearly arguing against um, conscience objection, uh, and particularly in, in contraception and, and abortion, but perhaps elsewhere. But you're also arguing that the doctor has a right to advise. Isn't that precisely part of the problem with the Victorian legislation, in that if you are advising the person that will induce shame in some people and in fact effectively with some people who are not assertive will deny them the right to that procedure because they won't proceed further because of that advice. Yeah, look, that's a good objection and that's what people, when I, I have a particular view of the doctor-patient relationship. So, you know, there are typically two models. The standard model is the paternalistic model. The doctor knows what's best and they and they do what's best for you. That's the old school model. It moved to what was called shared decision making or a consumerist model where the patient Brings the values, the doctor provides information, and the the patient decides according to their values and desires. I just provide information. So, non directive counselling in genetics is an expression of this shared decision making consumerist model. You just provide the facts, let the person decide. You don't express any view about what the right course of action is, whereas in the paternalist model, you just said, you just did what the right thing, what your view of the right thing was. And in my view, you ought to provide facts, but you ought to also provide. What you believe is the right course of action, based on your values, but you ought to be, be what's called um, humble, epistemically humble, willing to admit that you might be wrong, and willing to actually engage in dialogue. Now, when most people use this kind of rationalist model, you're right; they bulldoze the patient with their power and authority and knowledge and values, and effectively it turns into a paternalistic model. And I think the the answer to that is sadly it's a weak answer, is medical education and actually, you know, educating the next generation of doctors to be more open to people having different values, to being willing to put forward their values but also willing to hear arguments to the contrary and willing to support other people when they disagree with them. Now I agree with you in practice, maybe we're so far away from that sort of model that the best thing for doctors to do is just to provide information and let patients decide. I do think that that disempowers the doctor and also the patient. Because if you think, if you make any decision in life, you know, I was just having lunch with John and we were talking, you get advice from a bunch of different people and then you make your decision. And medicine should be the same as that. You should be able to get advice from your doctor and a range of doctors or a range of health, and then you make your decision. Um, And if you don't allow patients to do that, you're actually, you're also, you're also signing up to this relativistic view that whatever you want is, the, is, is necessarily the right thing because you want it. Now, I, I believe that people can choose things that aren't good for them, that aren't right, and that you know you have a professional obligation if you go to a lawyer and you want something and they they'll say, well, you know, I don't think that's the right thing for you to do. And I, I think that normative dialogue is an important part of medicine, but I agree with you, it's typically abused, and maybe we're not ready for it. So I, I. I Genuinely don't know what the answer to your question is. <laughs> One possible solution is for the practitioner to give advice when it's requested. Um, but yeah, but often people is- but you know, often people who least need it request it, and people who most need it don't request it because they're most certain about you know the, the rightness of what they're doing. So again, I think it's a complicated area that what you want your doctors to be are sensitive to the context of the situation. So when I said I think moral relativism is wrong, what I do think is correct is that ethical decisions are context sensitive. That is, they, sh- they will change according to the particular facts of the situation. So one patient may not need any guidance. And may- another patient may need more guidance. Some will just want facts and, need- and-, and facts are appropriate. Others, you know, a more value-laden discourse would be appropriate. But what you want is the doctor to tailor what they do according to the context and, you know, some sort of ethical education and, and, and set of values. But that's why I think ethical education is so important in medicine. But in, if you need a rough and ready rule, you're probably right. That's probably the best one. I mean, just to give you an example, Locke de Krepny is a colleague of mine, obst- obst- obstetric ultrasound specialist. We've written heaps of papers trying to decriminalise abortion. I went to him for my second daughter's ultrasound. And and he knew me, and he knew that you know my value was we, and, and my wife's value was we didn't want to have a child with a significant disability. That's our values. And so, when we had an abnormality on the ultrasound, and he said, "I think you should have an amnio," and I said, "Well, you know, what's the what's the what are the facts around this?" And he told me, it was a golf ball in the heart. So I don't know if you, what sort of doctor you are, but anyway, some associations with some sort of abnormality. They're very weak. They're normal nuchal translucency, nor, normal serum screening. And, and I said, look, well, we both said, look, we're going to take our chances. And he said, look, knowing you both, I think you should have an amnia, a CVS. I think that's what you ought to do. And I, I respected him for saying that, for, for actually pushing me to think about, or pushing us to think about it. And then we decided not to do it. And he supported that. You know, it wasn't as if he... And you know, I thought that was very good to challenge us. Now you you you'll come back and say, yeah, well, you were ready for that, and you you know, it was appropriate that he did that. But he did it in the right way, and and I thought that was a that was good medical practice. If he just sort of said, you know, these stats on golf balls are these, the stats on CVS are these, you go and decide, we would have decided the same thing. But it was good for us to have to think, do we really want to not have this CVS? And ultimately, it's about encouraging patients to own their decision, and if, if they have to to really choose it, you know, in my view, that's a kind of fully authentic decision. Sorry, there was one. Uh,
1: good evening. Uh, my name is Alex. I'm a Master of Law student at QT, and I am, in fact, Swedish. Um, I'm actually writing a paper on the removal of Section 8 from the ALRA. and I'm actually curious in your thoughts of what it would be if we did decriminalise abortion in Queensland, uh, but beyond 24 weeks, in fact, through the entire gestational period
0: someone wrote to me about some uh, problematic late term abortion, so you know i've I've written on this a lot with Locke, and we were very active at doing a survey and, and arguing around the provisions that are in the in the Victorian Act around allowing access for termination after twenty four weeks. So just to give you the results of a survey we did with Crosby Texter, if you ask people do Ordinary people. We did a large sort of survey as part of one of their opinion polls. Do you? Uh, what do you think about abortion after 24 weeks? Majority think it, it shouldn't be done. But if you give them specific cases, so for example, the baby has a major abnormality, or the woman's health is seriously, you know, affected, or she's been the victim of rape, or her husband is abusing her. In those circumstances, the, the majority support termination after 24 weeks. 24 weeks if there's a good reason. Now, for what it's worth, I think all abortions are to a degree wrong. Right? I think it's a it's a bad thing, even an early abortion. But I don't think so, you know, I, I think there is some wrong. It's just that the alternatives are even worse of not having that available. And in the case of late abortion, you've got the alternative of Adoption to another couple, which I think is something that is not vigorously pursued. So I think adoption of, of children that, that couples don't want is not something that, that is adequately pursued in Australia. Um, I do think it should be available though, and I think it should be available for good reason. So there has to be some filter in, in the Victorian legislation there has to be two doctors that agree that it's justified. Um, so some kind of filtering of the reasons. Um, but The reason for not allowing it is to say that something important morally happens at around 20 to 24 weeks. And there are two things that happen. One is the fetus becomes conscious, but minimally conscious. And secondly, it becomes viable, that is capable of being supported outside of the woman's body. And neither of those are so strong that I think they suddenly confer a right to life. For example, the viability criterion, just because we can't keep you alive doesn't mean you don't have a right to life. So I think that 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 whether we have a right to life should depend on features intrinsic to us, to, to, to the kind of being that we are. And I don't think that anything morally significant happens between, say, 20 weeks and 30 weeks. However, I do think the the ability to to adopt could also be applied to early um, termination if we were more open to the option of adoption as a a method of family planning. Does that answer your question?
2: Hello, Sue George, just a visitor from the general public. Um, I was interested looking at the the statistics for, I was looking for cases where there'd been conscientious objection that had been investigated uh, in Victoria and the great majority of ethical issues or issues that were being investigated were sexual misconduct, time and time again, actually. And as a teacher, I thought if that was happening in the school system, um, somebody would be alarmed at that, if that number of cases was coming up. Uh, is there something about the medical profession that finds it difficult to answer those ethical questions personally for themselves? You know, Why does that happen? in the medical profession where it simply wouldn't, if if I'm a teacher and I'm told you can't, that um, corporal punishment's no longer appropriate, then it's not. You know, I might think the kid (laughs) would benefit from a (laughs) slap round the chops. But that's not going to happen, is it? Because I'm a teacher and ethically I'm told these are the new rules, this is what we're doing. Great, let's all go in that direction. What is it about the medical profession that has trouble interpreting those boundaries?
0: Um, well, I'm not really that qualified to answer this, but I'll just give you my sort of two cents worth as a member of the general public. Um, I think that doctors deal with life and death, and they deal with people at their most vulnerable, and it's a very high status job, and they also have enormous power. Um, and the there has, you know, in our culture been, uh, you know, doctors have been valued very highly, and they have You know, it used to be a very high status job and they have um, a lot of authority. With that power comes corruption and also the view that you have a special status. You know, you you are special. And I think that, um, you know, they don't see themselves as, and I, you know, if you look at the responses to my article, you know, they'll say doctors are not technicians, they're not, you know, servants, they're not mechanics. They're there for a higher calling, you know. As as you know, they have a higher calling, and you know, in my view, that's just an outdated view of medicine. Doctors are there to provide a service, to have ethics, to have values, to, to do a job. Um, it's an important job, but you know, it's a job. And you know, this I used to work in emergency medicine, and and you know, I. I had all sorts of views about who should be prioritised. You, know, you get people who come in who have cut themselves up for the 20th time in, you know, three weeks. And you get people who have run over and killed a kid and they're completely drunk. And, and, and the staff will have views about how they ought to be prioritised uh, in terms of triage and who you should see next and so on. And you know, I just had to see, I had to put those aside and see them, you know, as the job required you know, according to a principle of equality that I disagreed with. I just did the job and you have to do the job. Um, and it seems to me this is a case where, you know, some doctors don't want to do the job. And if you don't want to do that job, do another one or do another specialty. And this idea that, you know, somehow you can claim to be special is, I think, you know, just a hangover of that, of that view. Anyway, that's my two cents. For I think you're...
3: Me first?
0: Yeah. Me first. Hi, I'm William Issell. I'm a law student. So, Julian, when you say that doctors should just do the job and that they should leave their own views um, at home, are you you arguing for a kind of rule, um, a rule morality in which the interests of doctors could never outweigh the interests of patients? Or are you simply saying that, in this case, the interests of doctors of having a clean conscience and not dirtying their hands is too weak to outweigh the interests of doc, of the patient. In yeah, look, the it's, in in reality, I think that, that values are going to play more and more role in medicine. And you know, Dominic Wilkinson and I have been, you know, arguing in favour of, of what I call cost equivalence. So, you know, one of the st- standard, So, we, I was asked to talk at the gastroenterological congress last year on this drug called Sofosbuvir, which is very expensive, eighty thousand dollars. Very good treatment of hepatitis C. Standard therapy is interferon plus liver transplant. Um, and it w- initially, sifosfibrir was not cost-effective you know, in terms of falling under the threshold of forty thousand dollars per quality-adjusted life year that Medicare, etc., uses. And we've been arguing: look, patients ought to get access to that, and not have a rescue transplant as an option. So, so we think that it's a reasonable thing for people to say, "I'll take the less, you know, the less cost-effective option, as long as like The cost of my care doesn't go past what I would have what the care that I would have obtained. So that's an ethical view that is against standard practice. And we think that's something that should guide care. Um, And maybe doctors should make those sorts of decisions about what sorts of care they'll provide to their patients. The thing about abortion, euthanasia, and contraception that is different is, you know, you're, you're just having this massive societal debate around it about what should be provided. And if it comes down that, you know, the government says, or, you know, there's, there's a vote to legalise, you know, abortion, decriminalise it, then, then th- that's a fairly clear indication about what, what's reasonable and what should be offered. And so, in a sense, that debate is over, where there's lots of debates in medicine that, that are still open and doctors' values should play a role. And they shouldn't leave them at the doorstep. But what they should be doing are using values around, so here are the values, respect for autonomy, um, promotion of the patient's interest, distributive justice. And the problem with the abortion contraception debate is it also raises the issue of moral status of human life. And that's something you just can't decide at the bedside you know, according to, you know, you're something you've got to come down in a position and different societies, Ireland will come down in a different way to Victoria. Um, but once you've done that, you, you need to, to then provide that level of service. And it's true that the, the values are inescapable, you know, every decision that you make involves some values and there'll be contested values, but the, the trick is to have that debate in the right way. Is that clear? Sorry.
1: Hi, my name's Nicola. Um, I'm from Griffith University in psychology. And I was just thinking about what you were saying about um, almost the, the filtering in of particular people into the profession as a way of perhaps getting around this issue. And if I understand correctly, that's sort of what Sweden and Finland have done. But I'm a bit curious because we've also got the organisational factors and the fact that it's not just the individual doctors who might object, but then they're going into a system that also has their values for example, we've you know got Catholic hospitals, but not even that, even administrators in even our state hospitals have their values that then filter down that also impact the doctor. So I'm just wondering, would it be enough, even if we were radical enough to take that step, would that be enough or are we actually needing to look at, you know, more generally system?
0: Yeah, look, the, 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 the issue is also, it occurs not just at the bedside with individual doctors, it occurs at a systemic level. Are there enough hospitals offering the sort of services that we need? And if they're not, then the hospitals that aren't offering them have to offer them, um, uh, or lose government funding, Um, or they do more of providing other services that the hospitals that are providing the services that we need are doing. So it's the same. You know, we have also we just I got this consensus statement for a meeting we had on conscientious objection, and one of the things with conscientious objection in practice is it has it has no costs. So it's very easy to say, oh, you know, I'm conscientious, I'm just not going to provide that. And we argue that it should be associated with costs. So if you're not providing that service as an obstetrics and gynecological training, you should have to provide, you should have to do more nights or you should have to provide some other level of service. So that, you know, it's not that, that burden is just going on to others who are providing what is legitimate care at an extra cost to them. And the same applies at an organisational level. If you don't have enough organisations doing it, then I think it's quite legitimate to say, well, you know, we're going to either remove some of your government funding or you're going to be providing more of the palliative care and dementia care services because that hospital is providing all these abortion services uh, or you have to provide abortion services because, you know, we have decided that's something that's important as a part of healthcare. Or you create a new clinic that says, just provides abortion services with a new tra- trained technicians that aren't doctors at all. I mean, that's another possibility. But I think we need. I guess my point is we need to take our values seriously. And if you think that women's access to abortion is important, it ought to be provided. And just you know, l- finding ways in which to, to circumvent that, you know, in, in in a secular society is not appropriate. I think. Um, and that's what. Sadly happens, um, even in Australia.
1: May I just add to that actually from a clinical context, okay? Having trained a number of junior doctors and having trained in the UK, I can tell you this, that performing an abortion, if you look at the technique actually operating because what you do, I didn't really do it, but what you do is it's a blind procedure. You do it by feel and touch. And the touch of a pregnant utrus is so different that if you had not done enough you cannot perform um, an abortion in any other medical procedure. And it's part of it's the basic operation in Doctors are healers as was provocative. We're healers till death. And so we don't respect our own if they don't respect the job that all of us are trying to do in an exceedingly ethical manner. I take a lot of um, objection when I hear people saying that doctors need to be taught ethics and morality. Well, if doctors do, then so does every other person in society. And to take a knife to another human being and physically cause them harm, and yet all the time having to think, at least in what I do, I must cause no harm. Well, we have to live that paradox every second decision we make. Um, So I think it's a little bit unfair to say that we're uncaring, we're untrustworthy, we're arrogant, we're powerful. The only power we have is from the doctor-patient relationship
0: and that is the power of the autonomy of the relationship and of the individual daughter. Well I agree, everyone needs better <laughs> ethics education. We need, more, we need more ethicists in the world. That will solve all the world's
3: problems.
1: We
3: just have one more question back here. Hi Julian, I'm a registered nurse and I'm also in my last year law in QUT. Um, I have assisted in various procedures and um, I've uh, also um, assisted in uh, abortion clinics as a pa- part of my student nursing training, but not here, it was in India. And um, personally, I have no objection, I participate and assist in any procedures for any service that a patient um, would want. But I can tell you it was downright ghastly to be uh, assisting um and two, because most of the women who came into those clinics were impoverished. They came in pretty much late into the pregnancy because they were trying to hide it from the rest of their family members. I saw parts of little uh, fetus, it wasn't pleasant. I've seen um, a 28 uh, weeker and a kidney tray, cry itself to death. It, it, um, well, whilst all these affected me and the sense of uh, the way it was done, <laughs> Personally, I um, personally might. If I was in a position not to undergo an abortion, I would try and do that. But I would not impose that on anyone. And I actually have seen doctors go out of their way to try and help those women because they knew that if they didn't help them, they'd go back to get some backyard abortion and die in the process. So I see a lot more empathy. I see a lot more sympathy. I don't. I. I don't personally see this whole. You know. I mean in certain areas yes that I'm this I'm this great guy who can or woman who can or doctor who can get you through but generally I've seen a lot of empathy and their understanding and perhaps there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear as to if I do this, what's gonna to happen to me? And is there any support from the rest of the community? Is there any support from someone? what if they what if someone complains and I lose this this profession or career that I have uh, put together? So I, I, I think that People have to be in the situation to be able to assist in such a procedure to understand uh, that it does affect you uh, in the sense when you see that and um, and then form an opinion, I suppose, secondary uh, to um, also the other fears a professional might have.
0: Yeah, well, I think that uh, just to, to say we, we, talk, we start off by talking about the recent review of the law here. I mean, having abortion as a crime means that and, and tolerating it, knowing that there's 100,000 abortions in Australia and that, you know, every day there'll be abortions in, in, in Queensland, puts doctors in a very tenuous situation. Because technically, well, they could be breaking the law. It just depends on how that particular act is interpreted. And, and that's not really satisfactory today. It should either be this is clearly illegal and stop doing it, and we're going to prosecute you, or this is legal, and here are the boundaries of what you can do, and here are the justifications. But the current situation of having a law that dates back to 1899 and la- allowing a practice to go on without proper, with it not in public, not properly s- supervised, women tr- struggling to find where to go, and often, you know, it not being, you know, always with the best providers. It's just an unsatisfactory way to deal with a problem and at least you know, have the guts to make a decision about is it legal or is it not legal and how do you want it to go on and you know, I, so I, I agree with you and i, I didn 't mean to come down on doctors I, a lot of my best friends are doctors and, and I think that they provide a fantastic service and I think that clarifying australia 's laws i mean it 's crazy you know it 's it's decriminalised in, in 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 Canberra and or, you know in the ACT and in Victoria, but it's illegal in New South Wales and Queensland and South Australia and West Australia. Funny mixtures of legislation. You know, what? It, this is the 21st century. This is one country. Have one set of laws for the whole place, and work out what you want, what you don't want, and, and enforce it. I mean, it's, it's it's sort of it's just not. It's, it's just it's it's bad for everyone.